Pushing Back Chaos with Mel and Mike and Raph. Welcome back to another episode of Pushing Back Chaos with me, Paul Mel McFadden, joined by my regular mate, Mike. How you going, pal? I wouldn't so much say regular mate, but uh, yes, I am here attending. Um, <laughs> pretty good, dude. I uh, had a very interesting week, to say the least, but uh, I'll keep that one private. Uh, but I'm here. It's Saturday morning here on the East Coast and woke up. The sun came up. I'm alive on the right side of the dirt. Had a good breakfast and uh, got some great plans this weekend with my girlfriend, her daughter and uh, church. So no complaints over here. That's great to hear, man. I had a, a great uh, my week's just my work weeks just started here on a Saturday afternoon where I am. And I bet I had a great uh, sort of family period. Caught over there, old mate Simon, who's been on the podcast before, had a bit of a workout and eat a lot of food and sit in the pool kind of a day with him and hung out with uh, the family for a couple of days and just just was in my happy element. But uh, more importantly, I think there'll be some people who are quite interested because we've got ourselves a guest here. We've got uh, Cameron Cam Hamilton, who's joining us uh, from the US. Welcome aboard, Cam. How are you going, mate? Hey, good morning, gentlemen, or good afternoon, depending on what time zone you're in. Uh, good yeah, to see yeah. you. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so we've got a, a great topic in the in the works. We've sort of been talking together offline a little bit about working our way through really broad topics, servant leadership and uh, integrity, which is always, always, always uh, currency that we're we're working on uh, here because nothing works without integrity. But uh, Cameron, maybe you'd be able to tell us a little bit about yourself, your backstory. I understand that uh, you two are a member who has spent a bit of time in uniform. Uh, in a previous life, and uh, maybe you know that will connect with a lot of our listeners and viewers are obviously people with first responders, military plus families uh, around the world. And uh, I'm sure they'd be very interested to hear about your backstory. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you all again. Thanks for having me. It's a privilege to be here. Um, so my name is Cameron Hamilton. I uh, spent some time in special operations in the military, roughly ten years, then transitioned to some other government jobs, doing different work in and out. I enlisted pretty much right out of high school. Um, so I did a, about a semester of college. I wouldn't say that that was really college. It was a junior college, a good one, but still, um, I wouldn't say that that was really a full college experience. Something about my, why I enlisted, um, it's it's hard to describe, but I, I felt it was my obligation to serve. I felt also it was my great privilege and that the makings of uh, of a good and humble man starts by serving others. Uh, and serving others, there's kind of a dichotomy about that that we'll get into later about, you know, is that being a quote unquote servant or is serving and caring for others, looking out for others, you know, cares as a, a superior to your own needs and what that entails from the position of leadership. So I'd say from a young age, I always found those who were involved in public service, local police, fire military, you name it, a variety of different capacities, even those who are working in the political spectrum, local politics wise, um, I felt that that was a significant burden of responsibility and a privilege to be in that role. So growing up, I always envisioned myself trying to embody some of those things. So um, I looked at the Air Force. Uh, that was not the route that I ended up wanting to go. Um, and so I chose another program within the, the military, specifically within the Navy. And then from there, 
um, had a good career, had some ups, had some downs, learned quite a bit, and then transitioned from the military life after an injury um, and, and into the civilian life, working for the federal government in other capacities, um, specifically at the state, uh, working overseas quite a bit in preparedness and response. And then also now transitioning to my my current job with another federal agency, the Department of Homeland Security. And so it's been kind of a interesting, you know, uh, pathway that I've followed from my career. But a lot of great leaders I've learned from, a lot of tremendous opportunities, a lot of mistakes I've made. And I have to acknowledge that um, things could have been done better by myself. And uh, there were perhaps opportunities I I maximized and I used well. And there were also opportunities that I squandered. And I failed to really use appropriately. Um, so that's a little bit about myself. I'm a, a family man, wife and three kids down here in a, in rural central Virginia. And I do have donkeys. So if you hear some braying or some loud noises in the background, that might be why. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So Mike, you'll be happy to hear that you're not the only jackass uh, in the background or on the call. So, man. <laughs> He's, he's he's just coming in hot, kicking it off just like that. I was going to be yeah, like, sorry, man, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't really spoken to Cam in a while, but if that's the route we want to go, then game on, my friend. I'm kidding, but seriously. Hey, bro, this is because this is of my love for you. Right? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's Cam, it, it's great to have you on here, man. And and like I said, it's it's been a while since we've had a good conversation and We've chatted here and there. I think there was a period of a couple of years where it was just, uh, you know, there, there was no comms. And that was strictly due to life and how that happens sometimes. You know, you could have best friends, guys you work with every single day, and then you go through a period of life where it's just silence, you know. And it doesn't mean that, like, oh, man, you know, that's when I started to hate you or this or whatever. It's just life. Life gets busy. Things happen. <laughs> Chaos happens you know, everything. But, you know, we've talked a couple of times over the last few years here and there. It's like, dude, we got to find time to catch up. We got to do this. And, you know, since we've been doing these, uh, these episodes, there's always some great topics that get thrown around and uh, discussion points. And uh, for the listeners, you know, you, you can hear that we're all bought into this journey of trying to figure out how to become better, better people, better men, better family uh, better teammates, better leaders, like everything across the board. And I was sitting there thinking throughout the week and I was like, man, I wonder what Cam's doing because there is a time when our careers kind of intersected at one point that we, you know, we talked a lot about life and family and he was, he was, uh, he was married at the time, but he had no kids and everything. And um, so was I. But life was completely different in a lot of ways. And we had some great conversations, man. And if I can say one really good thing after he just bashed me, um, <laughs> if I can say one good thing about him is I never saw him waver over what he believed in or break his values or his character for anybody else, even when he was introduced to some heavy adversity, whether it was physically or spiritually. Uh, I remember a few instances where I was like, oh my God, they just sent a nuke at Cam. And he was very physically disturbed by it, but I could see the internal battle going and he never lost his cool. I will probably always remember that about him. And 
that's something that's not as common today. It wasn't really common back then. This is over a decade ago. But even more so today, man, you see people just fly off the deep end and it's just like they're they're not a they're not attached to a pillar or a pillar themselves when it comes to who they're supposed to be in what moments. So when I talked to him, I was like, hey man, is there anything you'd like to discuss? And he's like, how about serving leadership, man? You know, like serving others and you know, talking about that type of relationship that we should have in all aspects of our life, not just with work or anything like that, but with our friends, with our family and anybody we encounter kind of throughout our life, you know, that's kind of what we were put here for. Um, you know, I was like, yeah, let's get him on the show. And dude, it's, it's nice to see you, not your face, but, or your ears. Look at those ears, everybody. For people watching on YouTube, look at these ears right here. He's, he's getting ready to go up and fly with Melon and Raph around in, in the Raws there. But uh, yeah, man, it's, it's it's really cool to finally have this conversation. I think it's been coming for a while. Yeah, I appreciate it, brother. Thank you for the kind words. Uh, there were definitely some interesting interesting moments. And I always like to say that you know you reveal the character of individuals based upon the challenges they have to endure. Um, it doesn't always mean that the challenges are are deserved. It also sometimes they they frankly are. Um, culpability is a big factor, and I, looking back at my my time in the military, some of the experiences you know that I went through, and that you you know you and I went through, Mike. Even even if things are uncomfortable, uh, there's quite a bit to learn, and there's quite a bit to be grateful for. So I've tried to embody that, even if I haven't displayed it the best over the years. Lord knows that um, I've sometimes let my emotions get the better of me, as we all have. But uh, but overall, I I would consider some of the experiences I went through a privilege. I wouldn't change them, put it that way, because I think they really helped forge much of the character that I have now, which is still a work in progress, very much so. Uh, but Mike, I really appreciate those words. Thank you. Uh, you've been a good friend for years. And as you said, even though we've, we've had a, uh, a break for a while, um, it's been really, really comforting to my soul to, to link back up with you, brother. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm honored too, man. And you know, I appreciate you saying I was a good friend, but if I'm being honest, at times I wasn't. And that was due to myself and me being shaken by outside influences and forces and allowing the wrong things in, uh, which ultimately changed my life, changed my direction, changed my path, changed my character, my values. And uh, I know I talked to you uh, was a couple of years ago when I think you first reached out and I admitted to you that I was really struggling and I wish that you were around, you know, and I know that bothered you um, because you're the type of guy that's a servant leader. And you're like, man, I want to be there to help the people that I care about, you know, and, uh, you know, that. but at the same time, I wouldn't change it either in a, in a sense, because exactly what you said I'm not proud of things that I've done. I'm not proud of the mistakes I've made and, and went through a lot of hardship, but it's given me the opportunity to be who I am now by going through the hard and, and taking time to learn the lessons, to understand what a good man is, what good friends are, what good values are, what good character is. And, you know, it's the whole saying, you, you never truly appreciate victory without knowing defeat. And... <laughs> The three of us right here, uh, none of us are a finished product and we're never going to be a finished product. It's every day is going to be a struggle to 
try to achieve what we were created for. And hey, we're trying, man. I don't know about Tio. Tio's not here. He's off flying, doing his work for, you know, people trying to get home to their families and doing everything. AKA he's sitting back in a recliner on an aircraft flying a plane and uh, doing his his job. But uh, no, we're all on the same path, man. And I appreciate you saying that. I thought that was a, an interesting or an excellent point that you made, Cam, when you were starting out. And you were talking about there about the crises reveal character. And that, you know, you, you've touched on and we've touched on and we, we talk about a lot uh, the failures that we have. And, you know, there's no, there is no perfect person and we're all going to come up short. And that's just the nature of life and being human. And, and taking on big big topics and, and big targets and trying to push or, you know, alternately not doing those things and sitting back and having a life that doesn't necessarily lead to the sort of contribution that we would like. But that real point there about um, crises and those difficult times revealing character, that definitely is, is true for me. I know that there's the hardest times I've had in my personal life or my professional life have been the times when I've, you know, you've had to reach, we've had to find a different aspect to yourself or develop a new trait or characteristic to get through that. Some of mine, I've talked about a lot here with family challenges, a super prem daughter and a wife with cancer and many other challenges, you know, along the way. Are there any key ones for yourself, Cam, where you've had those testing moments that are you know super tough and you, you're not necessarily sure at the time whether you're going to get through it and you're, you're struggling but then you can look back on later and you're like that that was a key moment for me that that challenge which if i could take the cup away i wouldn't have it you know what i mean i return the chalice i wouldn't take it yeah. but now looking back i can see that was a key one for me is there one or two maybe you'd be able to share with us yeah absolutely it, it is kind of funny to talk about that humanity. Um, we need to remember, too, that Christ himself spoke to the Father and said, if it be your will that this cup would pass from me, may it be done, but only if it is your will. And so it's a good reminder to think about, whoa, son of God asking that this challenge be taken off because he knows how difficult it will be. Um, and so I think that it shows the humanity um, that we're imparted with as part of you know God's character. And so for me, I, I think it's following in that same likeness. I think it, probably the most, there's been many challenges and we can talk about some of those other examples down the road, but probably the one that comes to mind the most, that was the most humbling for me, uh, where I felt like I had a lack of control. And that's one thing that I'm very, um, I've been told I was not the typical mold of the community I worked in. Um, and that I was very structured, very disciplined, very focused, you know, like we got time hacks, we got, you know, come on, let's lay out the gear, let's let's prep, let's get ready. And, you know, so guys would joke about me saying, man, you're in the Navy, but you should have been in the Army. I mean, what the heck? We don't do this kind of stuff here. And so it was kind of an interesting, you know, way to look at it. So I don't like losing control in areas where I know I can have more control. Um, it's different when it's something that's beyond your control. So I think for me, the one of the greatest moments for me to experience is when we almost lost our son. And I, um, I've been through trials overseas. I've been through what it, trials meaning you know difficult times and experiences, um, as as many of us have. Um, I've been through interactions here at home, but I think the one that was the most humbling and the most difficult for me to process and to keep my head around 
was when our son was born. He was born um, not really premature, but in a very high risk uh, metabolically and you know with his body, he had some comorbidities, uh, which you know medical predispositions based upon my wife and my genetics that made things challenging. And so he was born with a blood condition that was very, very rare. In fact, the uh, the physicians and attending nurses for where he went to in the neonatal intensive care unit, had not dealt with this particular circumstance for almost 25 years. So there was only actually one member of their staff who had dealt with this particular issue because the modern medicine now that we have uh, alleviates some of the, the phenotypical presentations, meaning the, the characteristics of the disease manifesting in flesh where you see the signs and symptoms, you see the impact. And so we're able to keep most of that at bay with a lot of modern therapeutics in this particular instance that had not really been conducted properly. So his condition worsened. And uh, so we, he was born severely anemic. Um, I mean, severely anemic. They did a blood draw on him and it looked like Kool-Aid, just very watered down uh, red blood cells, basically. To, to make a long story short, I won't go into all the medical terminology. I was a medic for those of you that don't know. So that was uh, an exciting thing for me. But um, when he was born, he had to be flown up to another facility that was about an hour north of where we were. And initially we knew he was high risk. We had elevated markers in my wife and her titers that showed that there was a high likelihood he would be a high risk child. And so through some encouragement, I was able to convince our, uh, our maternal fetal specialist and some of the physicians that assisted us with the delivery to have my wife deliver early, to induce her early because the longer this child's in the womb, the worse and worse these conditions become. Um, and so, and therapies while he's in the womb were challenging. So they agreed. He was born a week early. That's all I could get them to convince to, which at that time, 35 weeks is really not a preemie. They call it a preemie. It's really not. I mean, that's a very viable child that has so much of its faculties and its its abilities um, you know, to, to, to live freely without a lot of external influence. Um, you know, children like like yours that were born, you know, very, very early. The, I mean, this is a it's a it's a really difficult patient to manage because they require a lot of sensitive care because essentially they're they're missing out on two to three months of that development that they're not getting. And and you have to artificially create an environment where they get that, you know, with a chamber, with you know, expanded oxygen, with even the nutrition and the fluids they get, all of that. It's very sensitively marked. So with my son, when he was born, they had to fly him up to a more comprehensive facility. And that was a really terrifying moment for me because I was reassured by the physicians that they could manage worst case scenario with his birth, best case, worst case. There were markers early on that I was concerned with and I was given a lot of reassurance. No, 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 those are okay. Yep, he's within normal limits, those are okay. I won't go into all the markers and what they were, but I spoke with my wife and said, I don't, uh, there's more to this. I, I don't think that they're able to really promise me that these are outlier markers and that we shouldn't trust that feedback and, and that he's healthier than he really is. We found out later that had he been born even a few days later, he would have been a stillborn birth. Um, and so I'm just so grateful that we were able to convince my physicians to deliver her early. And I, I looked at the doctor there when he was born and I had this mixture of rage <laughs> and sadness because on the one hand, I'm, I'm terrified at losing this this precious child of mine, this third 
child of ours. Um, and, and I want to be grateful for that, too, because some people can't even have children. And so I'm, I very much understand that as well. But I'm also angry because I'm sitting here looking at a physician telling me that we can't manage your child. We have to send them out elsewhere. When I was reassured that they could. And so in the mixture of rage and sadness, I'm tearing up and I'm I was probably a PT stud back then, too. I'm I'm still OK now, but I was definitely in better shape then. And so this doctor's looking at me, <laughs> staring at him about ready to eat his face. And he has a, a humbling moment where he says, sir, I'm just telling you, if it were my child, I would want them up there. That's why I'm sending your son, because I want him to survive. And I, I immediately broke down and I, I told him, OK, I understand. You're an ally. You're trying to help my son make it past this 24 hours. Thank you. And it realigned my perspective on things because in my flesh, I probably wanted to strangle him. Um, but it wasn't his fault. And that was my emotions getting the better of me. So he's flown up. We couldn't go on the helicopter with him. So we asked, well, what do we do? And they said, well, you can discharge early. So I pulled my wife out of the hospital three hours after birth, loaded her up in the car. We went home, got a change of clothes. We, we sped up to the hospital uh, to see him where he was being held. And then we stayed there for about three or four weeks um, in the in the NICU. And it was a tumultuous time. And so the hospital felt awful because my wife had just been discharged and she's walking on the hospital four hours after delivery, you know, trying to get our way up. So we I scrambled, I grabbed a wheelchair, we brought her in. They did no health and welfare check on her when we discharged her out of the hospital because we just wanted to be with our son. So they were they were shocked. She had a, a fair amount of bleeding, and my wife is so tough. So she she handled it like a trooper. And these nurses were like, "Oh my gosh, this is amazing." So we we found her a room that was right next to the NICU. They have these two overflow rooms where moms can come stay if if their children are very urgent, you know, for a day or two. So we stayed there, right next door. Um, and so the hospital that treated us was so gracious. And for me. What made this even more challenging is that we had gone through some difficulties in marriage. And I'll be transparent. I think I was not showing my wife, my wife, some of the respect and some of the dignity she deserved. And I think I was I was really failing in the in the in the terms of being a father who was strong, courageous, but also very much was a servant of the family, serving the needs of others and giving of myself making sacrifices of myself for my family. I think I was really failing in that regard. And it was just so humbling for me. And so we, when he was he was born, we stayed there for a while. We named him uh, Salem, which has a root word in Hebrew for peace, because we both agreed and we prayed, let's let this be a moment of peace in our family. And I was being really, frankly, just not the father and the husband that I should have been. Um, and so it was a humbling moment. It was a good reminder to focus back on the things that are of a priority in life um, and to sort of check my ego. And I, so that's why we named him that, because it was it ushered in this era of peace in our lives and in our marriage where we we eliminated some of the distractions, some of the noise, and we focused back upon the basic principles of what does this family need to survive? How do we thrive? How do we care for one another? How do we provide for one another? And it was a good reminder for me to act as a servant leader, as a father, um, and to really help steward and, and bless my family in the best way possible. 
Um, and so I've always said, as a young man, I was impressionable when someone told me, how do you know you love something? You know you love it when you want it to thrive. You're willing to sacrifice so that this thing will thrive. And it doesn't mean that this thing will be happy. You know, a plant is very willing to grow shoots and off roots and branches in ways that will lead to its death and destruction. That's unhealthy. And if left unchecked, and so you have a, a prudent gardener comes in and has to prune, has to trim, has to guide, has to ensure that this tree grows properly with structure um, so that as it grows, it's balanced. It's able to, to, to thrive properly. If there's an injury, it heals it. So you're sacrificing time and effort. It'd be easier to sit on the couch and just sip a cup of coffee and say, oh, look at that tree over there. Wouldn't it be nice if it grows into a nice apple tree? Maybe, maybe it will one day. Uh, or you get off your butt and you commit time and effort to making it succeed, even in ways that might initially appear injurious. And so I think for me to wrap up the story, it was a good reminder to show me how I needed to influence my family when things were out of my control. Um, and it was just a very humbling experience. And then it allowed me to look back on the areas of my life that were within my control and understand, wow, I have more work to do uh, because I really need to garner this trust and this um, cultivate the relationships in my family so that we can endure challenges like this if more of them arise down the road. So I hope that answered your question. I hope it wasn't too, uh, too all over the place with my response. No, Cam, that's, that's a massive thing to, to share. And I really, you know, that hits, it hits close time for me as a father of a 23-week prem and having those, as you're saying there, you know, love is the willingness to sacrifice or something to thrive. And that's you as a father and that's me as a father and in that situation. And the thing you're trying to protect the most in the world is in that room, the mother and the baby. And it's like all of your upbringing and your values and everything are like, I need to make it safe and I need to make this right. Yeah. And you're in a situation where the, you said it earlier, the, the situation is beyond your control. The circumstances are not of your making. You haven't chosen it and yet you're in the midst of it and you're in that chaos, you know, and how do you push back and how do you create a space of safety? Massive challenge. And, you know, having gone through that, I really understand how in those times you, get, you can get that focus back on the marriage and get the focus back on the relationships, yeah. the, the head of the Nino unit. For me in Western Australia, Ronnie Hagen, a, an amazing man from Northern Ireland who was there, his wife was the head of the psychiatry department mm. and they had a theory between them after, I think, you know, 40, 50 years of, of medicine each. They said that all of the marriages that they saw, all of the, all of the, the parents, they either, under the load that was coming down on them in the neonatal unit, either like an arch, the two, the two people were pillars and were, the marriage was an arch and under load, it either got stronger or it failed. And he said there was no middle ground yeah. of the relationships that got a lot better and the communication and respect and kindness flourished or the marriages failed and there was no middle ground. So that's a, a huge thing to share with us and I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, it's a, it's a privilege. Thank you. Our son is, is doing well now and I'm, I've, I'm just been so grateful for that. He recovered and he's, he is a riot. 
So he's definitely, I think of all my kids, ironically, I think he's the one that's going to grow up to be the strong world warrior. <laughs> so it's, yeah, he's the quiet type, yeah. likes, you know, stuffed animals and cute little things. But every now and then you see this just unbridled rage come out of him. And it's, it's, it's pretty, <laughs> as a father, he's like, okay, well, we need to make sure this is under control, but it's also kind of, it's cool. <laughs> you want to yeah. see that. Yeah. Well, I, I, lo I love the uh, what you just shared, Hammy, because, you know, all this during the period that Cameron and I and I didn't speak, I was not part of this. So this is the first time for me hearing about any of this. Yeah. So that's new. But what's not new, as I stated before, is Cameron. He's the same guy I knew, a better version, it sounds like, uh, to me. <laughs> And I say that because it's been, I don't know what, 2011, I think, 12, since I saw you, like in person at work or around work. And uh, moving from that, it's just like, man, he sounds like the same guy with the same values, with the same phrases, the same mentality, only more refined, I guess, in a way. And this is like what we talked about in previous episodes is you never want to have somebody that's erratic, that's yeah. unpredictable, yeah. right? And it's so comforting to know that the people that are around you, especially in stressful situations like you guys shared, I know who, I know who I'm getting. I know who this person is going to be next to me. And that's comforting, especially when they're all good things, when they're productive things, when they encourage growth, when they encourage uh you know, having emotions is okay, you know, feeling this, this is okay, but this is how you control it, you know, and you both stated that, uh, that's powerful. And then when you can translate that, and, you know, I know for the both of you at some point, I know for myself, once you make it through something so terrible, so disastrous, so uh, chaotic, you stop and you go, man, how can I do this again? How can I build something out of this for the future to face the other stuff that is ultimately coming. There's no stopping it, right? There, we've always talked about there's good things coming, there's bad things coming. That's that's life. But it's like, how do I become this? And then how do I share it with those around me that I care for? Maybe you have a mentor, right? Or maybe you're mentoring somebody. And it's just like, how do I pass this message on to my kids? to my best friend, to their kids, to somebody on a sports team, you know, some junior person in the military. It's like, I want to package this in such a good way. I want to uh, exa be exactly a servant leader, right? I'm serving you by being a leader and being courageous enough to fail and to take the time to process those failures and solutions, package it, and then I want to give it to you to serve you better. It's exactly what it is. It's not a one-way street. It's not being at the top going, well, I'm the king and you're going to do this and you're going to do this and I'm going to sit back on my throne and enjoy the fruits of everything. No, that's a dictator, right? Like, and how many people do you know that run anything, whether it's work, family, uh, anything like, like a dictator? It doesn't last long. People don't respect each other. It turns toxic and it usually falls apart or something better comes along and knocks it off the throne, right? And the lessons that you guys are talking about, uh, along with, you know, I've been going to church now for, for a few months and, 
you know, I put myself out there and trying to hold myself accountable for what I was created to do. And honestly, in the last couple of years, I've really been feeling who I'm supposed to be and my purpose in life and why I was kept around, which I spoke about is like, I struggled with like, man, why am I still alive? Why do I deserve this? But it's like, I'm given the opportunity for a reason and what am I going to do with it? And uh, this is just such a beautiful way of living life and being that servant leader because it's done nothing but good for me. Yes, it's stressful at times. Uh, I had multiple, well, I had one really big challenge this past week, which I don't want to get into specifically, but man, you want to talk about being a servant leader. I was tested to my core over the course of about nine hours for a person I didn't even know. Yet they reached out for help and were trying to figure out a lot of stuff that was going on. And I was like, look, I don't even know this person, but they're reaching out to me for help for a good reason. And they had a family and all these other reasons. I was like, I need to be who I need to be because this isn't happening just because I was, I'm being asked to do this by higher power. And I want to be that person I'm supposed to be for this person to be a servant, like, like Cam saying, be a servant and help this person in the way it did. And then on the back end, there was a reason for it because it ended up affecting someone else who was going through something similar and was struggling and was like, I'm so glad you shared this story shared this experience because you just helped me in a way that I was so scared to even approach. And I was like, wow, look at that purpose. All because what? I said, I'm willing to be that servant leader in order. It wasn't for me. It was to help other people and not just think of myself. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the, the decisions we make and the actions we bring forth have greater significance than I think any of us really understand. That's part of who that shows you that God has a sense of humor <laughs> or that's part of his design or maybe a little bit of both. But um, I would agree with you. I think that when we make decisions, um, some of the some of the most notorious, you know, stances against against communism or against, you know, totalitarianism or some of these great moments of liberty or, or you know, courage are shown in, in seemingly small acts which then ripple and grow and and it takes one. It takes one to stand up for something that's just, that's uh, that's good. And it, it's difficult because it, no one wants to be the first person. That means sometimes you're gonna take some blows and sometimes you may not survive it. And maybe that's your purpose. Uh, and so th that also may be the case. Um, reading about, I mean, just for example, I'm doing a study on you know, some of the fighting in World War, World War II um, the way that we fought against the Japanese, I don't know that people really understand uh, when we teach history, just the tremendous sacrifices made of American pilots in the Pacific. We focus on the Marines and they're such wonderful warriors and they did great things in the islands and they fought so bravely. But a, arguably a neglected portion of that conflict was the, the air battles and the bombing raids that were brought about and the way that we, we sunk the, the three largest Japanese aircraft carriers and we lost over 50 pilots, 50 aircrafts. Just, I mean, and many of them were senseless, but at least that's how it looks. And then you read the backstory, you see how it cascaded, how it impacted, and then eventually these bombing raids that were successful, that crippled their fleet, um, just really astonishing. 
um, to see just this this immense sense of service and and the the great sacrifice that these brave brave men chose to do, even though knowing that they would not survive it at all, um, but that they were furthering the effort so that eventually two, three, four, five guys back in the row would find success because the first four were willing to lay their life down. But the fifth was the one that was going to break through and was going to actually succeed with the mission and cripple the enemy's defense and cripple their infrastructure, cripple their strike force. Um, just really amazing. So um, I think that's a great, another great example of, of servant leadership. Um, and so I think, uh, Mike, your, your points about what you do, I'm sure those pilots in the moment thought something very similar to what you're talking about, maybe on a different level, because they knew their lives were about to end. Um, I don't think you knew your life was going to end, but still the same context of you may not understand the implications of your actions, but there will be some and they will transcend far, far, you know, much farther than you probably could anticipate. Um, and it's, that's a, it's a blessing to see those moments. So. Some really, really powerful stuff getting discussed at the moment. Um, I appreciate both of you guys really sharing. I know what you went through this like, past week, Mike, and it's 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 big. I think defining servant leadership, you know, there's some aspects of it probably that occur to people immediately when they hear those two words put together. And there might be some people still, they're not sure really um, what's in it. And certainly, Ham, I was just hearing you speak there, and there's that selflessness that is a key part of the servant leadership. There's a commitment to the mission and the goal for the organization as something that is transcending your own. Um, you know, you having a win yourself is less important than having the team have a win. Mm -hmm. And I've heard some really good definitions uh, that, I, that I, I've, I've read around, I serve because I am the leader and I am the leader because I serve. There's two parts that go together, you know, that are enfolded together. Are there some other other phrases or aspects of servant leadership that you could put out there just to, to let people get a sense of what it is that we're talking about here? You know, like, are we talking about the person who's sweeping the floor? Sometimes we might be, you know, what is it that servant leadership, yeah. that topic means to you, Cam? How do you define it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, I, I love this book called As a Man Thinketh, um, written by a gentleman named Alan. It's a great, great book. It talks a lot about culpability, and he's a little harsh on some of his explanations, but um, he has a really great um, explanation talking about how you are the summation of your thoughts and actions. Um, and so I think many times we pontificate about what good leaders are, but we fail to apply it in practical means about, well, what would a good leader do? Um, and so we can't always govern the thoughts of others, or even sometimes we don't have as much control of our own thoughts as we'd like to say that we do. But um, I think transmuting those into actions uh, are really critical. So a good reminder whenever I talk about leadership with other people, I'm a division director where I work. So I, I do have discussions with other partners and other, you know, agencies and, you know, federal calls that we have periodically because federal government loves its its conference calls. <laughs> so um, whenever we do discuss things like leadership, I think some of the some of the way that I like to remind people is why don't you spend time embodying the characteristics of what you would want out of a leader? 
if you were to design a leader, take your step, take yourself out of the equation and look at the characteristics of what an effective leader would be, I think many times we struggle to apply those to our own lives. And we think, well, surely my leadership should do this. Surely my leadership should do that. Surely, um, you know, we had a, a discussion on, on a, a workplace issue that was quite significant that needed to be remediated. And the emphasis was put by a, by one particular individual saying, well, why doesn't leadership do this and that and this and that? And it was it became sort of a complaint fest. And I simply tried to bring it back to alignment with saying, and it wasn't me they were targeting. I was an outsider being brought in as a independent set of ears. And the the point that I made was, you know, leadership occurs at all levels. It's not just the guy with the bird uh, or the guy who's, you know, got the oak leaf or whatever, you know, whatever symbol that we're using. Um, I know our Commonwealth counterparts have some funny symbols on their collars that we don't always understand, but <laughs> either way, it's, it's not the guy with the highest rank that's the only leader. Leadership should be embodied at every level. And it might be a microcosm. You look at, you know, Moses coming out of Egypt, going back through Sinai and Jethro, his wife's father basically saying, look, you're one guy and you've got this massive tribe uh, you can't do everything. So you need to appoint elders. And so, oh, yeah, you're right. So maybe for every 50, we have one. And for every 100, we have two. And then they start breaking it down methodically. And it's that, that's pragmatic. That's, re that's reasonable. There's a cascading layer of leadership that works its way up. And then what's the micro leadership? The father in a home and in with a family. Um, but does that mean that children can't show times for leadership? No, you have an older sibling that cares for a young, younger sibling. So we have these opportunities, I think, to show leadership at every level. And I think when you push people towards culpability and personal responsibility, you let them understand that, hey, you're defining your character by what you do in these micro circumstances. And you're preparing for one day to be in a position where you have leadership responsibilities that are far more significant, that are far more um, expansive, and it would be wise to gain some experience at the lower levels before you work your way up and you just step into, you know, arguably no one wants to become the governor of a state or uh, the president of the United States or the CEO of a company just overnight. Arguably, the, the effective leaders had to work their way through many different layers of leading by example. Um, and so I think one of the one of the really cool things I love, like, there's a quote from Marcus Aurelius that I'll, that I'll throw out here. It is the responsibility of leadership to work intelligently with what is given and not waste time fantasizing about a world of flawless people and perfect choices. And so this is part of his, his meditations, which I think is a great, great book for people to read. But he arguably was one of the weird Roman, you know, Caesars that kind of went in a different path. Um, he kind of had this approach of a philosopher king versus a, a tyrant. Um, and so very interesting. So he was known for, even in his day, to wear common apparel. Uh, he didn't like the fantastical, brilliant, elaborate clothing. He wore common apparel and he would go and sit and hear lectures in public debates. And he was known to do that. Um, and so very much had a, a very strange, a guy, a guy who was not physically domineering or huge or lots of muscles, but he engaged and he listened. Um, and he really, I think, wanted to, to understand the improvement of his mind because he saw it as a, a privilege to be in the role to lead others. And so mm -hmm. I think he had a lot of characteristics, even his campaign 
the way he tried to provide support to some of the troops fighting in Germania and against the Gauls. And I mean, a lot of really critical conflicts of those days um, that were very, very interesting to read about from a historical perspective. And I think he really tried to embody much of that characteristic of servant leadership by going to the front line, checking on the troops, seeing how his personnel were doing, hearing criticism and feedback. He was known for having high-ranking officers give him very frank feedback that he didn't want to hear. You think of that in the day of an absolute tyrant, how how much of a complete, you know, a, a complete different direction that goes from the traditional, well, I'm the king, you tell me what I want to hear, you just get it done, and 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 I'm I'm an authoritarian, and he had a different approach, and I think that's a great example for us to look at. Um, Theodore Roosevelt has a great quote about, do what you can with what you have when you can, and it's a paraphrase. It's not the exact quote. I think it's actually do, uh, use what you have when you have it for situations where you can apply it, um, and so I'm, I'm paraphrasing the quote that he uses, but it's a really good argument of don't don't think about and get caught up in things being perfect, understand the humanity of people. And when you understand that, you know, Mike, I know both of you both have gone overseas and you've worked with people and I spent time in Afghanistan. And I think when you show what does servant leadership look like, I learned Pashtu and I ate and I had tea with our interpreters. And when you treat them like human beings, granted, I'll, I'll be transparent. There are things about some of their culture that I found very savage. Uh, but there are also characteristics about their culture that I really admired. Um, and so it's a weird dichotomy to think through. But when you treat them as people and when you are willing to go toe to toe with them and when you're willing to sacrifice of yourself for their benefit, when you see things that are coming down with Americans that are being, you know, authoritative or overly condescending or when you see Americans shying away from conflict, hey, just push these individuals out in front of you, which was not the norm. Uh, Americans and, and frankly, all our allied troops were extremely brave in that conflict. And we were willing to put our people neck and neck with the, with the Afghanis or with the uh, Iraqis or wherever, whatever conflicts we fought in. Um, and so I think when you show that, when you show I'm willing to put my blood on the line here with you, and in fact, I'm willing to support and defend you, you will never find greater and more allegiant people to work with who are just dedicated to, to serving the needs of this group. And so by having tea and by speaking in Pashtu and hearing them talk about their families and talk about my family. Uh, and when we had, I know it sounds stupid, but every morning in this one fob, we had cookies. We were spoiled. We were totally spoiled. We had this amazing, he was South African, uh, this amazing chef. Uh, I don't know how, but we had this guy who was just unbelievable. He was on some contract with like, this is the greatest kept secret in the world. Let's not tell, don't tell anyone we have good food because they'll all come down from, you know, from this other major base to where we are and they'll eat our food. It's ours. So we treated him like gold because he was, I mean, if you can eat well, even Osama bin Laden, one of the responsibilities of new members of his team, his inner circle, is could they cook? Uh, it's kind of funny. You think, are they a good fighter? Are they a dedicated jihadist? No, it's, hey, can they cook well? Because if you have someone who can cook well, Everything goes better for the group. So this guy would make these platters of cookies. And every day I'd wake up early, I'd do my workout, and then I'd bring him in to our, our office space. And my team leader is like, Hammy, stop it. I'm freaking going to kill you because I'm eating all these cookies all day long because you keep grabbing them and putting them in our workspace. But I took a plate of them to the Afghanis. 
every morning. And well, not every morning, but most mornings. And so they knew that. And they'd see me, hey, it's okay. They're always very relating. And so I showed them, hey, these nice things, they're not just for us. You guys are part of the team. Even though you speak a different language, you believe in, you have a different culture than we do. And your end state objectives might look a little different than ours, but we're allies here. And it's important to remind ourselves of that. So I'm willing to do things that might not be normal uh, to show you that I value you, to show you that I value your inputs. Mm -hmm. um, and so hearing them even talk about some of their families or talk about challenges in the past and just being quiet, suppressing your own speech and letting them relate to you the fact that, hey, I've, I may have friends that have died over here, but these people have dozens of friends that were lost to this conflict. They've lost family. One guy's entire family was massacred. His uncle was killed, his wife. I mean, just the stories that some of these people have gone through with the Taliban is just heart-wrenching. And if you just quiet yourself and listen and consider their input and empathize a little bit, it doesn't mean you change your perspective or you change the outcomes of what you're trying to achieve, but by showing them that they're valued, by letting them give you their insights and using when they're when they're correct, hey, praise that behavior, promote it, elevate it, let their peers see it. Um, they see your investment and they don't look at you as this superhuman individual that's a jerk. They look at you as a relatable human being that they're willing to put their life on the line to save. And I have Marines that I've worked with who overseas had Afghanis literally dying to save them. One, one individual was shot in the leg. Afghani guy reach, comes out behind a, a position of cover, didn't have to, behind a position of cover, grabs his body armor, pulls him back to safety. The Marines survived, the Afghani did not. Um, just unbelievable bravery because he loved this man. Um, and they were, yeah. and this this particular unit did everything with these Afghanis. They they built trust and rapport when they had extra food, they gave it to them. They 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 sacrificed of their needs so that they could uh, ensure that team cohesiveness. And I think those are characteristics that we think about and how you relate that to a family. It's very similar. Am I living a life that's prideful, that's self-focused, or am I really embodying the characteristics of what I want my, my sons to be one day as a man? Mm. It doesn't mean you're not courageous and it doesn't mean you're a, you're a timid servant. It means at times you're willing, though, to show and to give of yourself for the improvement of your family, for the improvement of your kin or those that you work with. And so I think those are some examples to pull from of why I think servant leadership is so, so effective. Again, not to be confused with timidity or with pacifism yeah. or even with hyper appeasement. That's that's not the case. Wanting to wanting individuals to thrive means at times you have to make decisions that are controversial that may even at times cause minimal harm but will it improve the circumstances and will this family thrive now in a way um, that's much more profound uh, because of your influence and so let me let me turn it over from there i know i've been rambling for a while man you're hitting some freaking absolute gold cam the notes that i was preparing when i was thinking about this you've sort of you've just you've just hit them all on that little burst there for me it was the first step is you need a culture of trust and that can be inside the family it can be inside the workplace that was exactly you with your passion 
uh, colleagues and brothers in arms in combat, if there's no trust, people can't give those dissenting view of those other bits of information that Marcus Aurelius needed to hear from his generals. So culture of trust first, unselfish mindset. So the focus on the team and the mission. And then I think one of the measures of servant leadership is that you can see is are they developing leadership in the subordinates? Are they empowering these people? Are they passing these things down? And do you see growth in the uh, in the people below, which you can clearly see in a family? You know, is there a tyrant father who's crushing uh, the children and they never develop? Or are you seeing these young people developing into leaders who are going to step forward in their turn when it's their time and being able to lean forward as the father steps back at the appropriate time? So I think there's some real power in what you were just sharing around the culture of trust, unselfish mindset, and developing leadership in others. Did you have any you wanted to throw in there, um, Mike, in your thoughts around definitions for servant leadership and uh, examples that you've seen in uh, in your life? Uh, I mean, I can talk about them later, but, you know, I, I love hearing from Cam. He's always been a mentor of mine, whether he knew it or not. Um, that's why I can go back 10 plus years and think of examples that I can relive in my head that are just like, yeah, that's who I should have been. Uh, what I kind of want to ask you, Cam, and discuss real quick is what what happens and what can you do when you are trying to be a servant leader for all of these great examples that you've talked about and why you should be a servant leader? Because there's different types of leaders all over the place. What can we do when we are trying to be exactly that, but we're going against someone else or maybe our superior that is not a servant leader, that's more of the dictator style. It's like, no, this isn't how I want things run. And, you know, there's that conflict of belief and well, this is what a real leader is, you know, what can we do? Because I hear about that a lot uh, in the military, but also just every job, you know, nobody's a perfect leader. Everybody's different. Everybody perceives things different. Life experiences, emotions are different. Literally, there's so many different things, right? And that could be a whole like 10 episodes on just that alone. But what are some things that we can do if we're trying to be a servant leader to not destroy, but maybe understand each other when you're going against somebody else like that? Yeah, I, I think those are, that's a great question because you have to get it back to practical application you know what how can we impact this and create it or allow it to foster i think when you allow individuals to choose willingly i don't know you know looking at feudal england we're gonna you know for uh, looking at feudal england is a good example and the barons eventually told the crown look there are limitations to your power um, and so you see and it was a very challenging time eventually you have the magna carta coming out but no 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 the the monarch is not an absolute monarch. There's some, the, the idea of what they were fighting for there um, was just that they wanted some stake in the decisions. They weren't, they weren't refuting the fact that the monarch was a critical position in that country, which is, again, the government structure that, that England and, and Great Britain has really chosen to pursue, uh, which is fine. It's their prerogative. But they were indicating essentially that it was his responsibility to hear feedback from his subjects and that they had there had to be a dialogue and there had to be limitations on absolute power. Because what did they want? What was the end? They wanted to be culpable in the shaping of that nation. 
They wanted not only their property rights, but they wanted to also be of influence. And what do you see later? The House of Lords created. You see Parliament created at one point because the citizenry said, look, we, we understand your role, but we want to participate in it too. Um, and so I think when you have individuals that can be pushed or can be maneuvered in such a way so as to be mentally on board and to where they're contributing and they feel that cohesive team, it's built with trust. But practically, too, we can't be overbearing. I think one of the easiest ways to do that is to think of in circumstances where you're not thwarting kind of innovative efforts and you allow them to thrive with the skill sets they have. People are people. And, you know, Plato always talks about the human element in his book, The Republic. Um, and he's very condescending about it sometimes, too. But he's also very critical. And you need to understand that people are very different and there are different motivations and influences that govern their thoughts. And so when you treat them as people respectfully, um, you can give them each avenues where they can they can succeed where they need to. So I think, number one, convincing individuals to be a part of this system, this team, this element is, is the first step. Um, and that's done, I think, reasonably through, you know, commander's intent and just basic yeah. intent. What's the organization? You're, you're starting a 501c3. You're looking at joining a military unit. You're looking at starting a company. You want to develop a, a brotherhood of like-minded individuals that's going to be working on a project. You're going to build a house. You're, you're building construction for an industrial park. There has to be some kind of commander's intent. There has to be a starting point. What's the mission? What does success look like? What are the tools we have to get there? Um, and so I think by defining those, you let people understand, okay, there's a rationale that we should follow. You're, you're kind of setting up the frame so they see a pathway of this is where we need to be. These are the resources that we can use to get there. Now, what's the best way to employ them? Um, and so I think promoting innovation and, and a free thinking spirit is really key. And I think one of the easiest ways to suppress the development of a group from having really good cohesion and being an ineffective leader is by acting as a bottleneck for every decision. Um, so allow and provide an opportunity for people to be autonomous in some degree. Now that is a double-edged sword. It can go too far. Um, and it, 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 that's where it's a, it's a healthy balance that you have to keep. You know, you're constantly, it's like, it's like we talk about Mike BTM, right? Brake throttle modulation on that Humvee. You know, you a little bit of gas, but you also got to put a little bit of brake because you're trying to engage all the wheels properly. And it's this weird sweet spot of, finding that balance between the two too hard on the other and it's not going to work this this vehicle is not going to make its way up the terrain and acting as a leader in that regard give i, I love the way general Patton used to give instruction he was was very pragmatic you will give your directions on a single sheet of paper it will be discernible it will be no more than four paragraphs and he had these examples of give clear guidance clear objectives that have to be met and then let them use their resources creatively to get there. Um, and don't micromanage. Understand, too, that you want to promote taking risk. Not unnecessary risk, but reasonable risk to achieve an objective. So you want to take this hill. Okay, strategically, what are we hoping to benefit from? it? Um, you know, X, Y, or Z, is that of a significant impact in the war or in this conflict or in this, this region? If it is, are we willing to sacrifice lives to do it? Um, that helps narrate your plan of action. Okay, so we may be willing to take more risk because the strategic benefit of gaining this is worth it. Or 
do we gain that much? And I think that's unfortunately what the troops didn't feel like in, in, in Vietnam. Um, you know, you have Lieutenant Colonel Hackworth in about face, right? It's all about, he was a hard ass on his troops, but they knew he was because he was trying to protect them, to keep them safe. They were better trained, better prepared, able to meet the enemy with great success. So he was tough on them, but he was keeping them alive. And they understood that. And he wasn't taking foolish, unnecessary risk. Um, and they really trusted that. Um, and so he also showed he had a standing order in his unit. If any enlisted service member had worn out boots and their immediate commanding officer had good boots, he would fire them on the spot if they didn't turn over their boots to the subordinate because he wanted them to say, hey, guess what? I may command you in the field of battle, but your care and well-being is of greater importance than mine. Um, and so I think that's another good characteristic for leaders to live by. And I wish I applied that more in every environment, in life, in every circumstances I've gone through. Um, but I think that's a really critical ability. And it was so, it was to the point where it's so silly. He has, he has memoirs written about some of the officers that worked in his unit and how they essentially, uh, you know, the Rakondos, about how guys were on litters being carried off, being injured in battle, dying, saluting him as they're being handed off onto a helicopter, still knowing that they're they're dying. They thought it was important to salute their commanding officer on their way off because they saw him as such a great leader. You talk mm -hmm. about, you know, a moment to see the absolute appreciation for the humanity of life. That's it. He had these brave men that were willing to sacrifice themselves because he did it first. And uh, there's a letter also from um, from Lieutenant Colonel or from Colonel Chamberlain that I'll read here in a moment. If you guys don't mind, it's it's a brief section. But he really another thing to consider is so how do we practice? Because you're talking about battlefield intent, give instructions and orders where you can so that your, your team can understand and use their resources to get there. Um, even if it's not the most convenient, you allow your team to learn. Um, and so, but don't take unnecessary risk, but also you have to understand what's going on with the people you're leading. You may not agree with it, but you have to understand it. And there may be times where you put yourself in their shoes. Aha. Now I see why there's challenges here. And I think Colonel Chamberlain in, 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 in the civil war, um, he was a, a Colonel in the North, uh, received some regiments from Maine. I think he had a great example of what servant leadership looks like. So, for example, he's writing a letter to the governor, Governor Coborn in Maine. Um, you know, Governor, I've had the honor to acknowledge receipt of your favor of the 20th instant addressed to Colonel Ames and sent to me as the present commanding officer of this regiment. Colonel Ames has been appointed Brigadier General and has taken the oath of office and has been assigned um, where he is now on duty. And so the first words... I have had the honor to acknowledge the receipt. Uh, what a humbling example of this man considered a privilege to lead others in the battle. Uh, and so that's the way he starts his letter. Uh, and it's just such a, it's just a great way to start the whole conversation off. It was a privilege for him to be responsible for these men. Uh, but then he goes on. This is kind of a ragtag group. Um, so moving on to uh, the second section, there was another matter, Governor, which I wish. To have word with you, the transfer of the three years of these men in the second main have been so clumsily done. The men are allowed to go quite mutinous, or the men uh, have been allowed to grow quite mutinous and left uncared for in their old camp. 
They've gone for several days and even having at times and provocation to work themselves into such a pit of mutiny that General Barnes had to send them to me as prisoners, liable to severe penalties for disobedience to his orders. You're aware, Governor, that promises were made to induce these men to enlist, which are not now kept. I must say that I sympathize with them in their view of this case. Assured as they are, assured that they were, uh, that, that should be mustered out with the second, they cannot but uh, they cannot but feel that they are falsely dealt with in being retained and sent to the duty of other regiments. This must be managed with great care and skill, but I fear that some of them will get into trouble for disobedience uh, or orders of mutiny. And so he breaks down this letter further, basically saying, look, literally this unit was sent to him almost completely in chains. And when I say in chains, I mean shackled as prisoners to fight for the North because they were mutinous. These men hadn't been paid. They hadn't been given leave. They hadn't been provided the rations that they required. So there was a, an obligation, a contract that was not being delivered on. The first thing this man does, Colonel Chamberlain, is he empathizes with them. And he actually lines these men up. He unchains them. And in a moment that's very notorious for his kind of career, one of the brilliant leader of this time, but such a great servant leader, he lines them up, he frees them and says, look, you and I have a hard road ahead. We've got to go fight the South. And these are the challenges. And they have a very well-built war machine. But what I need out of you is trust. And he explains the purpose of the mission and explains that he fully understands that they've been wronged and that promises were made to these men. And he, he recognizes and acknowledges it and merits it. You're correct. We have not delivered and I owe you an apology. And I promise I will do everything in my power to remediate that. So he he puts himself in their shoes and just speaks to them humbly. And I, I use this as an example of what a beautiful moment of servant leadership. Arguably, this would not be good for his career. Arguably by his superiors, they think just hammer them down even more, right? Crush the mutiny, kill the will. Colonel Chamberlain knew that if I kill their will as a tyrant, number one, I'll probably be killed in my sleep. Or number two, they'll have no willpower to fight against the enemy on the field. I need these brave men to choose to be here. And that's one of the key differentiators between the Persians and the ancient Greeks that fought in Thermopylae mm. or in many other battles. It was the willpower. You read all about the Peloponnesian War. What a terrible war this was between Athens and Sparta. But these were all men that fought freely and they were willing to battle it out. Really amazing. That's why many times, um, you know, pharaohs, Eastern kings, and even those in the West enlisted Greek mercenaries because they knew if you convince these men to fight, they are the bravest because they fight because they choose to, not because they have to. Um, and there is nothing braver on the battlefield. So Henry, I think when you... Henry, real quick, um, just to kind of capture, so... Yeah, I know I'm rambling on my bad. You're, you're good, man. Dude, these are good ramblings. I mean, some people just ramble on. And you're like, what did I just waste my time on? That was not it. Like, those are excellent, outstanding points from history and great, amazing leaders. Um, out of all the points, you know, I'm sitting here taking notes. And uh, I'm glad nobody can see me because I still write like a, like a five-year-old. But, you know, the biggest thing I came from is you know, the question was, how do you deal with other people that don't agree with being a servant leader or that type of person? 
And what it kind of sounds like is allow the actions and the ripple effect to handle itself in a way of like, you don't need to shut off and stop what you're doing because someone else that believes in uh, dictatorship or, or, some, or tyranny or something like that, it's like your actions. And, this, and we went back to the beginning of the episode, your actions and consistency over time are going to show through the adversity, right? And you people are going to notice that they're going to see it constantly. They're going to really, really know you not about what you're about or just a title or position. They're like, I really know who this person is in every situation and they never change. And the situation never really gets as bad as it does because of what they bring to this team, what they bring to this family, what they bring to this relationship, whatever it may be. And that is going to win almost every time I'll say there are certain times to be that dictator where it's like, you know, Cam, you use that example in that workplace where you're outside and you're like, whoa, whoa, everybody needs to stop right now. Like you're bickering. There's no solutions being made. There's nothing happening. We lost pr productivity. So now you need to stop and you need to do A, B, and C. Yeah, there's times where you got to be assertive and step in and, and shut off that stuff because we're humans. We get lost. We ramble. We do, we do all kinds of stuff, right? We're emotional creatures. So there are times and places. Uh but, you know, to answer that, it's like, man, I love servant leaders. Both of you are servant leaders. Uh, Raph is a servant leader. And we always build each other up. And over time, it has been more beneficial than anybody I've ever el I, anybody else I've ever followed. You know, time and place, sure. But all the time to be a dictator, dude, I don't care what you do. I don't care who you are. I care to not ever spend one more second of you in my life. You know, I don't care that you were special forces. I don't care that you were a CEO. I don't care that you were a sports teams coach, whatever. You can you can go kick rocks. I don't care about you because you don't care about me or, or how I see things or my life or what I'm going through, you know, and it's just it's very cut and dry when I see that now. You know, it's it, that filter has been in place through pain, through failure, through hard conversation. Um all great points, yeah. but um, you, have to, you have to embrace the burden of command. Absolutely. And absolutely. it is a it is a burden of command. And you're right. The best way to refute kind of a more oppressive arm of leadership is show the example, show the success mm -hmm. that you can gain when you gain when you when you seek the input of your subordinates and of the team and the success of that team as a result. That's there is no greater way to refute an opposing perspective or an opposing pathway towards achieving a goal than by example, than by showing it applied and seeing the results of it. Um, and so I, I think that's the best way to do it. There really is no perfect, you know, argument to be made philosophically, although we, we should bring philosophy into it because it's, you know, understanding matters of the mind. Uh, but the, the, the consequence and the results of teams that are working effectively together, that are giving of each other, that are sacrificing where needed, that kind of civil service, um, I think, is the best way to refute a more oppressive arm of leadership. Because the results are going to be there to, yep. to observe in, in the family unit, in the yep. sport team, in the business unit, in the combat team and a flying squadron. Yep. Your, your point there of when the commander's intent is clear, he's communicating the mission, defining success and clarifying the resources available when he's promoting innovation, there's promotion of reasonable risk-taking. 
and there's empathy at the top, you're going to have much closer to 100% of the ability and effort from the members of that team. There's going to be a thousand small solutions occurring to the little things that come up through the day that we all have to face with, where they're not going to be sitting back and going, well, I need to go back to the boss for him to tell me what to do, which is what's going to be inculcated in a, a more domineering style. So when people are given these clear steps that you've just laid out there, Cam, you're going to have solutions that are just going to be appearing and you might not even know about them. It might be you hear about them over a cup of tea later in the day. Oh, yeah, all this other stuff happened, but we did these things. And how much more effective it is, that team, and the output and the, uh, the goals that are going to be getting hit. And the same thing in a family unit. You know, you're going to hear about things that happened at school from your, your children and it was just getting resolved by them, you know, from the clarity of that communication at the start. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. You want to, the best way to show the effectiveness of a, of a good leader is when you, you remove that leadership role mm -hmm. and the team still succeeds. Um, the team is still able to maneuver and, and to, to thrive. And I think that's just what a great example of, okay, you've not only been a leader, but a mentor and you fostered that, that growth and that development and the team benefits better with you, but it can still succeed without you. And that's, really what we all should be wanting so well i think such, that's a, such a good great point to to end the episode on man i mean that's the ultimate test <laughs> dude that, that just really hit me cam it was just hey somebody accusing you or anything else like this it's like hey i don't like this style your leadership or how you are or how you're running this company this team like whatever well take me away and, and see how well my people do you know, that will show you who I truly am and how much I'm invested in my people and what they bring. I care about them. And exactly what you said is just, hey, if you take me out of it. Did I do enough to teach them about life, to teach them about work, responsibilities, you know? And, and that's the beauty of it is it's across the board. That's what we're supposed to do as we get older, gain experience, is to share life experiences to mentor our children, to mentor the next generation, to take over, to be better, to be more prepared. You know, like that's our whole purpose now as we, especially as men, we bear the responsibility as leaders in our own home, at work, around the world. Uh, women too, I'm not excluding women. Women have a massive responsibility as well. Absolutely. Uh, but it's, Absolutely. Uh, you know, it hits us in this conversation uh, that way. And I think that's, such a great point to leave it on to reflect on and uh you know for me to close up the thing i i want to ask the the listeners is ask yourself what type of leader you are you know who who are you working for who who's below you uh how can you be better do an honest assessment there, there's some really good uh there's so many out there but you can google like leadership uh, personality tests and all this stuff and it'll help match you up with kind of where you fit whether you're more like uh, you know, democratic leader or servant leader or dictator type, you know, <laughs> like little, little bit of each, but it'll give you a snapshot of like what's going on. And then a good exercise to do is to the people below you or the people above you is have them take it as well. You get your results or you have these conversations, write down some values or things you believe in, get together in a non-work environment and non, 
business environment, whatever you're in, like go go have coffee at the coffee shop and sit down in a nice, fun, healthy, light environment and open this up and have a conversation about, hey, this is this is my values and what I believe. And uh, what do you think about that? And where can we agree? Where do we disagree? And then how can we move forward? Because we're in this. We're matched up. Like there's we're in this. We're, there's no like, well, I'm not coming to work anymore because I need to work and support. You know, it's it, there's got to be that uncomfortable conversation, but we can control that. And you approach it with the facts, with the beliefs in a non-malicious way. That's how things are resolved and things get better. If you ignore it, if you're scared to have that conversation, if you're just like, I don't care, I'll just deal with it, then stand by because you're not going to be happy. You're not going to be satisfied. You're going to be miserable. You're going to be accepting the culture of well, let's talk behind each other's backs and let, let's say I'm better, but don't say this to this person. And it's just it's it's unhealthy. Right. And there's ways to get past it. So that's my challenge this week to everybody. And uh, I'll end it with that. Gentlemen, thank you for having me on. It was a privilege. It was good having you, Cam. Well, Cam, it's it's uh it's pretty special to have someone with your experience plus your personal characteristics come on and share with our community, Cam. I know that uh, I've certainly taken a lot out of the conversation with you, and it's it's clear that you're a man of wide reading and uh, careful application in your in your personal life and in, in your work. And I really love that thought of the test is how does the team perform in the absence of the leader? And I think all of us can think about that in our own lives because in one part of our lives, at least in our families, there will be a time when we're not there and, and we need them to continue to flourish. And uh, if we're not applying these kind of thoughts and uh, intent into, the, into those relationships, you know, you're going to, there's not going to be a flourishing when that, when that eventually does happen. So thanks very much for all the listeners out there. If you wanted to get a message to Cam, hit us up, send us uh, an email or a message and uh, we'll make sure that that gets passed on and we'll, uh, we'll get that feedback to Cameron. And I'm sure we'd all, you probably will join me in thinking it'd be great to hear some more insights from Cameron. So perhaps, you know, down the, down the road a little bit, we can get Cameron back for a round two, but uh until that day, take care, see where you can't apply these lessons in your own life and uh, let us know how you go. All the best.